Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the January 9th, 2011 edition of I Am Are You? The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio news magazine. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Steve Pride. And I'm Vosh Bodhi. Tonight we're kicking off a five-week podcast experiment. And I think it's exciting. It's giving us an opportunity to go multimedia. We get to see the faces of the LGBT community, and I think that's exciting. Well, we're not doing video tonight specifically because you refuse to put on clothing. But that still gives us the opportunity to get around censorship, so I can actually I have show a my dirty tools. word. Tom Goss says a dirty word in his interview, and I thought, hey, I can leave that in. Because we're doing podcasts. We're the hip kids. Yes, we are. And we get to expand our horizons. Not only do we get to expand our topics, but we also get to expand who our contributors are. Oh, that'll be exciting. Very exciting. We'll be back on the terrestrial airwaves at KPFK on February 13th, the final day of Mardi Gras. Expect a party. What is that? What is it? Uh, Fat Tuesday? Fat Tuesday will be the following day. See? So we're going to give it to you hard and strong on February 13th. Hmm. <laughs> That's another step away from that censorship that we can get away from. Oh, I feel so damn sick and dirty. I can't stand it anymore. Until then, we'll be experimenting. Huh, I sound like a freshman girl at Brown. <laughs> experimenting with all aspects of the broadcast, starting now with tonight's really big shoe. Everybody's feeling gay when they hear this fella say There's a really big shoe tonight A really big shoe tonight We got Noah's Ark from the far off past We're gonna reproduce an atomic blast We got World War II with the original cast We got a really, really, really big one tonight It's a really big show Shoe, not show And we're all gonna go Goo, not go Well, shoe or show or goo or go You really, really, really got a big one Tonight Yes, we got a big one for you First, in headlines, we bring you This Way Out News and talk with Paul Canning, the UK-based editor of LGBT Asylum News Blog, about his report of gay and bisexual Kenyan men being trafficked in the Arab Gulf sex trade. And in politics, we talk with R. Clark Cooper, National Executive Director of Law Cabinet Republicans in D.C., Karen Oakham, Frontiers Magazine news editor in L.A., and Wayne Besson, executive director, Truth Wins Out in New York City, about the Iowa caucus results and recent candidate debate. In digital. We report on the battle for a dot gay, top-level domain, and talk to Scott Seitz, the man at the front lines of the cyber skirmish. In screens. We talk to the director, Dee Reese, and star Kim Wayans of the new lesbian hit film Pariah. In retort. We counter Ted Haggard's appearance on Celebrity Wife Swap with a few words from Mike Jones, the male prostitute who outed his regular client in 2006. In tunes. We meet D.C. musician Tom Goss, who shares stories of high school wrestling, attending seminary school, and coming out before picking up his guitar for a live in-studio performance. I'm sorry I got distracted by the words high school wrestling. It has a tendency to do that. After all that, I feel I need a rest. So in travel, 
We jet to Florida and journey through the streets, bars, and bedrooms of the gay paradise called Key West. And in last word... 1980s TV sitcom character Julia Sugarbaker from Designing Women returns with her two cents on conservative politician Rick Santorum. Well, let's get started. I'm Rick Watts. And I'm Michael LeBeau. With NewsRap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting the lesbian and gay community for the three weeks ending January 7th, 2012. Jamaica's new Prime Minister, Portia Simpson-Miller, seems to be signaling a new era for LGBT people in her Caribbean nation. Politicians there have routinely condemned homosexuality, a colonial-era sodomy law banned sex between men, and many people in the highly Christian nation believe homosexual acts are sinful. But Simpson-Miller, who was sworn in on January 5th, argued during a televised debate in December that Jamaica's laws against homosexuality should be reviewed. Our administration believes in protecting the human rights of all Jamaicans. No one should be discriminated against because of their sexual orientation. Government should provide the protection. And I think that we should have a look at the Bogre law and that members of parliament should be given the opportunity to vote with their conscience on consultation with their constituents. International human rights groups have called Jamaica one of the most homophobic nations on earth. Violence against sexual minorities is common on the island, and police often look the other way. So Simpson Miller's comments surprised many observers. She also said during the debate that, contrary to the position of her predecessor, she would choose cabinet members based on their ability to manage and to lead not their sexuality. Elsewhere, the Spanish-language news agency, EFE, reported in late December that eight Mexican same-gender couples would soon legally marry near the tourist resort of Cancun. The city-state of Mexico City opened civil marriage to gay and lesbian couples in 2010. It's thus far the only municipality in Mexico where such marriages are officially allowed, although the country's Supreme Court ruled that they must be legally recognized nationwide. However, according to the EFE report, the couple's lawyers successfully argued in the Mexican state of Quintana Roo that gays and lesbians should be allowed to wed because the marriage application there is gender neutral. Travel groups are reportedly preparing to market Quintana Roo as a Mexican-Caribbean wedding destination for same-gender couples and plan a mass wedding ceremony in Cancun sometime this month. But Hungary's new constitution includes a ban on same-gender marriage. The updated charter was approved by a huge parliamentary majority in April 2011 and officially took effect this week. In addition to the marriage ban, it fails to protect sexual minorities from discrimination, even though gender and race are covered. And it appears to outlaw abortion by stating that fetuses are protected from the point of conception. Hungary decriminalized homosexual acts in 1961 and does allow same-gender couples to register their partnerships, though they can't adopt children. It's also had an equal age of consent law since 2002, and gay people can serve in the military. But a statement by the Hungarian organization of the Helsinki Committee for Human Rights said that the new constitution expresses a preference for an explicitly defined family model and conveys the message that it does not wish to become the constitution of those who wish to pursue a different way of life. A Malaysian national has outraged his countrymen by reportedly entering into a civil partnership with his boyfriend in Ireland. Traditionalists in Muslim-majority Malaysia have burned local newspapers that published a picture of Arif Alfia Rosli wearing traditional Malay attire, 
apparently exchanging vows with his tuxedoed Irish partner. An Islamic youth organization spokesman told Agence France Presse that Arif is a traitor to the religion, race, and nation. He should return to Malaysia and seek forgiveness from his parents and Allah. If I meet him in Malaysia, I will punch him. The 28-year-old Arif told the Irish Times that he had moved to Dublin eight years ago to study medicine. He refused to confirm his civil partnership but said that returning home under the current situation is untenable. Homosexuality is a taboo subject in Malaysia where opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim has for years accused authorities of trying to destroy him politically by repeatedly prosecuting him on sodomy charges. He's called the colonial-era laws archaic and unjust. The former deputy prime minister and rising political star who's married with six children was first imprisoned for corruption and sodomy in 1999. A sodomy charge was later overturned, and he was released in 2004 after completing the corruption sentence. Under Malaysian law, he was barred from re-entering national politics until 2008. He was arrested again in the middle of that year after a 23-year-old male aide claimed that Anwar had sexually assaulted him. The 64-year-old Anwar faces up to 20 years in prison if he's convicted of the latest charges. In other news, Brandon McInerney was sentenced to 21 years in prison in late December after pleading guilty to second-degree murder in the February 2008 shooting death of his classmate Lawrence King at their Oxnard, California, middle school. King identified as gay and occasionally wore makeup and high heels on campus. Defense attorneys claimed that he aggressively flirted with McInerney, driving him to bring a gun to their computer classroom and shoot King in the back of the head. The prosecution called that a gay panic defense and offered evidence that McInerney was a white supremacist and hate-filled homophobe. The lengthy trial in mid-2011 ended with a hung jury, which couldn't decide whether to convict McInerney of murder or manslaughter. He agreed to the plea deal to avoid a possibly harsher sentence in a retrial. While he was 14 at the time of the execution-style killing, McInerney was 17 at the time of sentencing, so he'll be behind bars until he's 38 years old. John Geddes Lawrence, the defendant in the landmark U.S. Supreme Court case that declared sodomy laws unconstitutional across the country, died on November 20th, according to an obituary posted in mid-December by R.S. Farmer Funeral Home in Silsby, Texas. He was 68. Lawrence and Tyrone Garner were arrested under the state's homosexual conduct law after police entered Lawrence's home in September of 1998 and found them having sex. The couple challenged the law as unconstitutional. What came to be known as Lawrence v. Texas went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and on June 26, 2003, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote in the High Court's opinion that, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Persons in a homosexual relationship may seek autonomy for these purposes, just as heterosexual persons do. Many believe that the Supreme Court ruling striking down sodomy laws opened the door a few years later to civil marriage equality in Massachusetts and elsewhere. Tyrone Garner died on September 11, 2006. A bill to revoke health insurance coverage for unmarried domestic partners of government workers in Michigan was signed into law on December 22nd by right-wing Republican Governor Rick Snyder. Snyder said the action doesn't affect employees of the state public universities or state government employees. It does apply, however, to municipal and school employees and to both same-gender and unmarried heterosexual couples. State law denies civil marriage to same-gender couples. 
The Detroit Free Press said that the bill targeted domestic partner benefits for same-gender couples that were instituted by a handful of cities, schools, and most of the state's public universities after the adoption of Michigan's one-man, one-woman marriage amendment in 2004. Emily Devendorf, director of policy for Equality Michigan, called Snyder's report for the measure appalling. The governor has put hardworking gay and lesbian couples and their children into harm's way by eliminating important health care coverage. The American Civil Liberties Union and the ACLU of Michigan filed a lawsuit this week asking a federal court to overturn the legislation. And finally, Washington state's domestic partnership law already grants many of the benefits of marriage. But Democratic Governor Chris Gregoire called this week for the passage of legislation to make her state the seventh in the U.S., to open full civil marriage to lesbian and gay couples. With a marriage license, couples marry in civil or religious ceremonies. In issuing the license, the state should not involve itself in an applicant's religion. The responsibility of the state is to license only. The right of a church is to decide whom to marry, and the state shall honor the religious freedom of all faiths. The arguments used today to discriminate based on sexual orientation should remind all of us of the arguments that were used to discriminate in the past, specifically the laws banning interracial marriage. The Democrats control both houses of the Washington legislature, but openly gay state senator Ed Murray warns that socially conservative Democrats have a history of voting against equality legislation. And as if he never benefited directly or indirectly from legislation he helped enact, Republican Senate Minority Leader Mike Hewitt said his party would oppose the governor's marriage proposal because it will be spearheaded by Murray in his chamber and by openly gay representative Jamie Peterson in the state house. Each of them, he complained, is vested in this personally. That's News Wrap for the three weeks ending January 7, 2012. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap was written by Greg Gordon, recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles, and produced by Steve Pride. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep This Way Out on the air at thiswayout.org. I'm Rick Watts. And I'm Michael LeBeau. You can hear more News Wrap and the entire half hour of the latest This Way Out on free podcasts at thiswayout.org or on iTunes. Also on this week's show, something weeky this way comes. From a leaky gay soldier. Who is Bradley Manning and why should you care? Listen to the podcast anytime at thiswayout.org. And now, headlines. Hello, I'm Steve Pride. A few days ago, I came across a provocatively titled story on the Huffington Post. Kenya's gay and bisexual men being trafficked in Arab Gulf sex trade. And I was so stunned by the article that I tracked down its author in London. My name is Paul Canning. I'm the editor of LGBT Asylum News. It started as a response to the proposed deportation of a young gay Iranian in the UK and I started it as a sort of web aspect of the campaigning around that and it's kind of developed since. Uh, I cover asylum and refugee issues and also what's happening in the countries that people are fleeing from. Paul, 
You came to my attention when I read a report in the Huffington Post about gay men in Kenya being sold to the Arab Gulf sex trade. How did that story first come to your attention? Well, basically, it's via a friend of mine who has started a magazine in Kenya called Identity, Dennis Nizelka, and I spotted it when he emailed the December edition of the magazine. It sort of stood out as an interesting story. Um, I am aware through my interest in migration issues generally of the problems that affect people who go to work in the Gulf region and Saudi Arabia. Uh, enormous problems there in terms of basically a slavery situation that has started to be addressed by some of the governments, but many of them haven't. It's an issue which the State Department actually has taken a big interest in, and it does actually provide a lot of information and documentation on, on what's happening. What's interesting with this story is, obviously, it's gone very viral, and there's also been a number of follow-ups, and one of the interesting things which came out was a interview that somebody managed to get with a gay Kenyan in Bahrain and he was basically saying that the situation that he was in with some guy in Bahrain was actually a very good situation for him so there is obviously the awful side to this which I picked up from identity but there is also this other side to it where some Kenyans are benefiting from obviously the increased opportunities in somewhere like Bahrain. So it's a very interesting story and I'm sure it's actually going to develop even more from here. And I know that Dennis is very pleased to see the focus on identity. I should say that the, one of the things, and I did this in my end of the year roundup, is that there's been this little explosion in media in Africa for LGBT issues. There's now at least four separate outlets that are reporting from Africa by Africans. And the other thing that seems to have happened is that the groups there have been engaging a lot more with the media, the mainstream media there, and there's been quite a shift in a number of countries in the, obviously, the more independent, less sort of government-oriented media in terms of how they're covering these issues. Particularly see that with something like the Monitor in, in Uganda and the Daily Nation in Kenya. So it's a very interesting story, I think. The U.S. media pays scant attention to international social issues. I don't think even the LGBT press took much notice of Africa before the proposed Kill the Gays bill in Uganda. That's true. I mean, I, I obviously follow developments in the U.S. and what's being focused on. I think there are some news outlets who do a better job of this, obviously, than other ones. And obviously the reason that the Ugandan thing really got so much focus was because of the involvement of Americans there, uh, Scott Lively and uh, the family and the political connections to Ugandan politicians, all of that sort of thing. And friends of mine have done some really excellent background reporting on those connections. What I think would be excellent to sort of follow up on that strand would be the connections between the religious right in America and other countries in Africa and what they're doing there. And the way I tend to sum this up when I write about it is that they're basically losing the cultural war in the United States. And I think that they've made a really conscious shift overseas. I did a story about a month ago out of Trinidad and Jamaica, 
about the intervention of the ex-gay movement people there that they were sort of taking out adverts in uh, four-page adverts so um, that was a very interesting angle I think that that really deserves a bit more investigative reporting from the states. What are some of the other top stories you're covering right now at the LGBT asylum news? Since we've covered the whole of the world then that's quite a big sort of call. I mean one thing I would pick out because I think that this always shocks me in terms of the lack of attention in America is the situation of asylum seekers in the United States. You recall there was this fantastic speech by Hillary Clinton in Geneva and there was the memorandum by Obama about engaging on LGBT rights all over the world and the State Department would do this and blah 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 and the refugee angle was one very big part of that. There was something right front and center in terms of what they were saying and certainly The State Department, I know, has done a lot of really good work with UN agencies and helping with expediting, getting uh, Iranians out of Turkey and all of that. But there's a really serious problem in terms of the US itself. For example, the situation of people who get into the detention system, a lot of which, as you probably know, is actually privatized and is not run by the government. And people there are being treated absolutely appallingly. There are cases of people dying, there are cases of people being raped and sexually molested, particularly awful situation with transgender refugees. And these are people who have fled the most appalling violence and harassment in places like El Salvador or Honduras and Nicaragua. And they're fleeing to the United States and then they're flung into detention and getting it all over again, getting that sort of torture within the system. And there are groups, there are various groups that I work with and write about that are working on this, but the community in America just doesn't seem to be at all interested in what's happening with these people. And I I think it's a real shame that there's no attention focused on the plight of these people. If listeners want more information on these or similar stories, where can they go? The National Immigration Justice Center in Chicago, part of Heartland Alliance, is, is one of the main groups that work on these issues. There's also the Detention Forum who do a lot of work on these issues. I mean, basically, if you go to my website and you look at the posts that I've done on detention in America, then there's a series of stories there. Human Rights Watch has done stories on on the situation. I just did a story recently about the situation. Somebody done a report on four privatized basically prisons that people were being put into in the Chicago area. Have a look at what's on my website around that, but the the main group that I work with is National Immigration Justice Center. My website's URL is actually madikazimi.com, who is the Iranian kid that I helped in 1997. But if you just Google LGBT asylum news, then we come up first. So just Google us. Again, this has been Steve Pride speaking with Paul Canning, editor of the UK-based LGBT Asylum News. Thanks for listening. Oh, a storm is threatening my very life today. If I don't get some shelter, oh yes, I'm gonna fade away.
And we're back. Wow, Steve, great piece. That was really, really powerful. It's hit me on a number of different levels. We hope to talk to um, the editor of Identity Magazine, which is LGBTQ magazine in Kenya in the next few weeks, and maybe we'll get some more information that way. Definitely I want to talk to Paul more about his work with asylum across the world. Absolutely, absolutely. And what I love is that this is IMRU Radio bringing you this type of in-depth coverage about what's going on with the plight of LGBT people around the world. It's so hard to get past the fact that the station is 10 minutes from West Hollywood where you can easily be lulled in to the sense of, hey, you've got your rights. Yes, and yet just in Chicago, I mean, he's talking about one of these facilities being in Chicago, which is, you know, the heart of America and atrocities are happening to our LGBT brothers and sisters. And we need to be aware of that and we need to start taking action. Well, there's a lot more show to come. Yes, there is. And a lot more uplifting and engaging material coming to you from Steve Pride and Vosh Bodhi. Now, politics. With the Iowa caucus last Tuesday and the Concord debate on Saturday, the Republican primary continues to astonish with negative attitudes towards the LGBT community. So I decided to put it in perspective by talking to a trio on the front lines. R. Clark Cooper, National Executive Director of the Log Cabin Republicans in Washington, D.C. Karen Olcom, Frontiers Magazine news editor here in Los Angeles, and Wayne Beeson, executive director of Truth Wins Out in New York City. R. Clark Cooper, executive director, Log Cabin Republicans. Log Cabin Republicans is the only Republican organization dedicated to representing the interests of gay and lesbian Americans and their allies. Well, you know, of the candidates who did participate, in the Iowa caucuses, and not all of them did, Governor Romney happened to be the best uh, on the issues that would be affecting LGBT Americans. And of course, as you noted, Senator Santorum rose by appealing to a very unique, myopically socially conservative electorate. And as, as I've said before, those divisive politics that helped Santorum's campaign in Iowa will only hurt him in New Hampshire. So, you know, as, as we look toward New Hampshire, uh, in their primary, which is an actual primary versus uh, uh, a loose caucus format. In uh, the other state primaries that are coming up, in my home state of Florida has a primary at the end of the month after New Hampshire, after South Carolina. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a long-term game. So voters will, will learn more of, say, Santorum's record. Uh, it's no surprise that Michelle Bachman, of course, just recently dropped out of the race. There's a limited return for what they're shooting at. Winning the White House is going to require politics of addition, not division. So it's going to be really a long, drawn-out process. We're only at the beginning of it right now. But Lord Kevin Republicans are confident that ultimately our party, the Republican Party, will eventually select a candidate with the best chance to win the White House. And, of course, Rick Santorum is not that candidate. So you know, though he was running up there in the top, if using gay and lesbian Americans as a wedge can't score enough political points to win more than 25% of the vote in Iowa, uh, it certainly won't help him to continue on his path to try to seek being the nominee for the Republican Party. My name is Karen Oakham. I'm the news editor for Frontiers Magazine, which is the LGBT magazine for the greater Los Angeles area. 
I'm also the editor of LGBT POV, which is my personal blog, which is primarily a political blog. What do I think about the Republican primary race? Frankly, I think that it's a pretty far-gone conclusion that Mitt Romney will win the primary in the end, mostly because Ron Paul has hit a ceiling. Rick Santorum and Rick Perry, um, you know, they go up and down Newt Gingrich. They've had their moments in the sun, but they're all too far, far right and too religious to win a a general election against President Obama. Now, John Huntsman is making a stand in New Hampshire. This is where he's devoted so much of his time. And so he will have a blip on the radar screen, I think. But truthfully, because he tries to show people how smart he is by speaking Mandarin, it does indicate how smart he is. He was the ambassador to China, However, for the Republican Tea Party ear, it suggests he might be the Manchurian candidate. So I don't know that he will go very far either, albeit I do think that he's one of the smartest candidates that they have. Mitt Romney is still coming out as being a flip-flopper. It's all very complicated, but I think that people are paying a lot of attention to the horse race, a lot of attention to the mistakes and the gaffes, some of which are just outrageous. Um, when we get to know what people really think, Rick Santorum really wants to ban all contraception? Really? So I think that that's all very revelatory. But in the end, if the Republican Party wants to defeat Barack Obama, they're going to have to choose somebody who can, in fact, go toe-to-toe and make some sort of argument, especially in the economic arena, against Barack Obama. And in the end, I think that they may conclude that that's Mitt Romney. Now, most recently, as you know, there's been this back and forth about Mitt Romney and his campaign against uh, Ted Kennedy when they were... uh, Running, It was Ted Kennedy's uh, re-election campaign, and Governor Romney was trying to get his seat. And he said that in the race, he said he would be better on gay rights than Ted Kennedy was. Well, that's come back to bite him in the, in the bottom a little bit. And as a matter of fact, the Obama campaign just put out a statement in um, just now, actually, just today, attributable to Ben LeBolt who is the Obama re-election press secretary. And this is the statement. After Mitt Romney claimed he'd be a stronger advocate for gay rights than Senator Kennedy when he was running for office in Massachusetts, and one day after saying that gays should have full rights, Romney's campaign today disavowed a flyer that simply said all citizens deserve equal rights regardless of their sexual preference. What on that flyer does Mitt Romney disagree with? Does he not believe all Americans should have equal rights? Who is he trying to pander to now? This is why Americans will have trouble trusting Mitt Romney. He doesn't keep his word. Now, that's right out of the gate from the Obama campaign. 
going against Mitt Romney. So even they see Romney as uh, as uh, their opponent, and they're going after the LGBT vote. I'm Wayne Besson, the founder and executive director of Truth Wins Out. We're an organization that fights anti-LGBT extremism, uh, particularly religious extremism and political extremism. We also counter the ex-gay industry, these groups that try to prey away the gay. I thought the debate was a disgrace. It was an embarrassment to the Republican Party. I thought that it was an insult to America, which stands for we hope for freedom and liberty. And uh, we saw an incredible amount of radical extremism. We saw people who shouldn't be considered for the highest office in the land. They were talking as if they were fringe candidates. So far, the GOP election is like a movie with no central characters, but just character actors that should be laughed at who have been catapulted into the leading role or the potential leading roles. It's a huge threat to the LGBT movement when one party puts forth candidates who can't get into office unless they're dishonest and they're slick, like, or they uh, are relatively sick, like uh, Rick Santorum. So you have a, a situation where you have to have people like Mitt Romney who lie about their record or somebody who's just incredibly out there, uh, like Santorum. And uh, this is a dangerous situation when these individuals are actually considered for the presidency. I don't think candidates that extreme can win unless there's a big problem with the economy. If the economy continues to improve or just stays even, I believe Barack Obama will be reelected. I believe these fringe ideas that are put forth by their candidates and the Republican Party won't play well when they leave the comfortable confines of uh, rural Iowa and rural South Carolina. But I still present a danger because under extreme economic conditions where this country and its voters are under duress, they could lurch and grope out there for some candidate that promises them something. And we might at one point get in office, hopefully not this election, somebody who's unfit to leave this country, who serves not the country, but a radical fringe movement of social conservatives uh, who I think their views, for example, Rick Santorum, uh, more accurately would be represented in Afghanistan. They talk, they, they, they bash secularism. They seem to want a Christian version of Sharia and, or to make this country the Christian version of Iran. And if this ever comes to the a situation where we have people like that representing 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and living there, our country will not be the bastion of freedom that we hope it would be. Any opinion at this point is a snapshot of a moving target. By the time you hear this, it's likely the New Hampshire results will be in. And who knows, that could be a game changer. Unfortunately, for our community, this is not a game. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
I'm Steve Pride. And I'm Vosh Bodie. And you're listening to the January 9th, 2011 podcast edition of IMRU Radio Magazine from the studios of KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. Now, digital. Right now, choosing the URL for your website is pretty easy. Do I want Steve Pride is My Hero to be a .org or a .com or even a .edu? But all that could change this year if a friend of mine has his way. I'm Scott Seitz, and I'm the president of .gay LLC, and we're the lead community initiative to apply for .gay on the Internet. .gay is going to be the new top-level domain for the gay and lesbian community, and the top-level domains are going to be introduced over the next few years. It's just been opened up on ICANN, the Internet Committee to Assign Numbers and Names. And we're, we're in the process for a community domain because what we'd like to do with .gay is create a safe space on the Internet and network the entire global gay community for sharing information and learnings and helping our businesses grow and our social services survive. Scott, pretend I'm stupid, which is really not hard to do. What's a top-level domain? The top-level domain is everything to the right of the dot. So .com, .org, .biz, those are all examples of top-level domains. And in uh, the last ICANN meeting, uh, the application process to allow anybody to create a new top-level domain was approved. So we're part of three to maybe as many as a thousand folks that will be applying for new top-level domains in the coming year. So this is probably the most significant change to the internet that's ever happened in our mind. A lot of people don't want to see this change, and that's not a choice. It's going to happen. So the thing that we try and help people understand is you need a strategy, and you need to think about what this change is going to do for your business or your brand and how to leverage it. It's not going to cost that much more money. It's almost like placing an ad in the media. You choose your media to find your best audience. And so the internet is now, instead of everything going through .com as your single source and publication, you'll now have .radio, .music, .shop, .sfo, .nyc, and .gay, where you can find the audience you're looking for. And so if your business is looking to talk to gay people, you'll have a direct place to put a web website down and use that to either as your main website or to drive people into your main product. I think I understand why we'd want a dot gay TLD. See how I'm rattling off the jargon. But what's the big deal? Why won't they just give it to you? The process requires that you show that you've got a community. It requires that you create a business plan and you actually show what you intend to do and how you intend to do it. And it's something that they create a competitive process around. So all of the new top-level domains, .gay, .sport, .music, .radio, all of these domains potentially could have multiple applications. And so this allows the healthiest and the best business plan and the closest to the community's needs to all be considered. Are there a lot of competitors for .gay? 
there isn't a very visible competitor right now for .gay. There's a second application that was started some time back, and we haven't seen any activity from them since 2009. And there are a number of people. We're a community application, and should, for some reason, we not win as a community application because we do have to meet criteria for that, there's a possibility that we would have to go in as a regular business application, in which case anybody, regardless of their relationship with the community, could buy .gay, and that would be where we would anticipate having competition. Why would your group be a good choice to manage .gay? Well, the first thing is it's going to be run as a hybrid. Uh, It's a for-profit, but we'll be giving 67% back to the community, and we'll be doing that through a a foundation. There are several business models out there right now that look at 60 to 70% givebacks, so this isn't an unusual business model. I feel that one of the interesting things is this sort of found me, so I pay attention to when things like that happen in my life. And as a result of that, you know, I recognized also how important this is to the gay community going forward globally. And a lot of people were really approached about this uh, when when uh, um, Alexander Schubert, who originally started the concept with ICANN and announced it in June of 2009, proposed it. He realized he needed to have somebody gay running it. And so he reached out to a lot of folks and it just resonated with me. In particular, as, as somebody who has a marketing company as well, I recognize how powerful this could be to help create some business interaction that the community just doesn't enjoy right now, especially globally. I mean, we tend to think about New York and LA and San Francisco and Chicago and Miami and then we you know and maybe and then Philadelphia DC Boston you know it kind of goes from there but there's so much of the community is not in those places and this is one of the best ways that we have for reaching out and really sharing and facilitating important work as a community, we're, we're large, but our organizations are small and they're sorely funded locally in many cases. And so we felt that the benefit would be to create a single place and a single umbrella for the community. And we're keeping top domain names that other people would want to sell off, in particular, lesbian.gay, transgender.gay, bi.gay, etc., so that those organizations and those people and those uh, affiliations have a place under the umbrella of .gay, but they can take advantage of the fact that it's a very expensive process. So to come up with $500,000 or more on your own is certainly arduous. We can take advantage of building the overall community and still let our identities stick out in each of those areas. So in those cases, you would hold the first and second level, and then what? We're proposing an index system that could maybe be compared, not compared directly, but it'd be simpler to maybe call it like a Craigslist scenario. The point would be if we keep communitycenter.gay or just center.gay, hiv.gay, aids.gay, health.gay, all of those sorts of things, lesbian.gay, bi.gay, et cetera, if we keep those keywords for the community instead of letting those go out to somebody who may just even sit on it and wait for the highest bidder, we'll be able to create a a hub for each of those areas where our work as a company can be in finding ways to get them to interact and work with each other and build each other and help each other more. So by keeping those key names, we think we're building a benefit to the community as well. This has been a conversation with Scott Seitz. If a .gay TLD is approved by ICANN, it could go live this year.
More information on this plan can be found online at .gay, that's D-O-T-G-A-Y, dot com. Well, for now. One day it'll be .gay, .gay. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. A hero takes a school seat, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In the November 2011 election, Daniel Hernandez Jr. was elected to the school board in the Sunnyside Unified School District near Tucson, Arizona. He felt he would bring a unique perspective to the table, having graduated from the district in 2008. Hernandez, then a 21-year-old political science major at the University of Arizona, helped save the life of Congresswoman Gabrielle Gifford when she was shot on January 8, 2011. He was interning at a constituent event when the congresswoman was shot in the head. Afterwards, Hernandez said, I wanted to find a way to do public service. And that he is doing, with his top priority fighting to maintain all-day kindergarten amid dwindling funding. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Scott Ilnicki. Now, screens. Are you ready? Yep. I said off. And I thought you said you were ready. I am ready. You're not going to church in that. What's wrong with this? Where's that blouse I bought you? What's wrong with this? That! Do what your mom says. Are you hungry? Here, let me heat this up for you. That's okay. Oh, it tastes so much Just better. Just leave it. Leave. Leave me out of it. Now go get changed. Dad, what's wrong with this outfit? Nothing. See, I'm not gonna argue with you. Do what she says. Dad. Ungawa. And put on a skirt. Mariah, which generated a lot of buzz a year ago at the 2011 Sundance Film Festival, recently opened in Los Angeles and select theaters across the U.S. It follows a 17-year-old black lesbian named Alike, who already knows she likes women. That's not the question. The question is, what exactly does that mean? My name is Dee Reese. I'm the writer and director of Pariah. The film is about identity. It's set in current-day Brooklyn, New York, and it's about a teenager named Alike who, you know, knows that she loves women, but is figuring out how to be in the world. We see her caught in this tug-of-war between her best friend, who's very butch, and is pushing her to be, you know, more AG, which is not really Alike's personality, and then at the opposite in her mother, who's pushing her to wear skirts and heels, which isn't her personality either. And so it's about Alike understanding that, that it's okay to be herself and that she doesn't have to check a box to fit anybody's expectations. You just used the term AG, and it's referenced in the film. I knew that meant aggressive girl going in, but you never explain terms like that in the movie. We really wanted to trust the audience, and we made a point to not explain. You know, like Alika gets pat down, stamped, and pushed into the club, and so we're, so we're pushing you into the club also. We didn't want it to explain to the audience. And you know, like one of the films I liked that I had the, the actors watch was Paris is Burning, where although they're you know introducing you to a world, and although they are like defining some of the things, they really let the characters tell their own story, and they force the audience to just understand just through context, and so you get it. So. 
that's what we wanted to do with this film, to push you in, and the audience will like understand like that the audience is smart. In films that feel they have to explain everything, it sometimes feels like a documentary of an exotic land on the Nature Channel. We didn't want it to feel like this trip to the zoo. We wanted it to feel like you're with Alike, you're experiencing the, the emotions that she's experiencing. We didn't want to objectify the characters of this world. We wanted you to be with Alike and really feel what she's feeling. The star of the film, Adepera Oduye, is a heterosexual Nigerian actress far removed from the urban lesbian landscape. But she found common ground with her troubled character. I immediately related to not feeling free, a feeling I didn't belong, that feeling of like, you know that there's this awesome person deep down inside that you can't be for so many reasons and you want to be that person because you know it's there. And where you see Alike is she's at that point where she's, she's feeling that and she's like trying to let go of all of that. And so that's where I started and then I had a lot of conversations with Dee. We talked a lot. She was really open. She's like, I'm, you know, anything you have, any questions, anything at all. And so I asked her, we talked a lot. I asked her many questions. And she's really good at, you know, doing really cool homework assignments. And so me and Pernell Walker plays Lori. We went to a gay club in character. We went to a straight environment in character. And just kind of like, and that dropped us specifically into the world of Alike and Laura and all of that. And so, and I read R.G. Lord's Zami, which was really good too. Dee, what was the genesis of your film? I first wrote it in 2005 as a feature. And I wrote it because I was going through my own coming out process. And so, you know, although I came out when I was 27 and I'm from Nashville, from the suburbs, and totally not Alike's world, I can relate to her experience of understanding that her spirituality and her sexuality aren't mutually exclusive. Alike also has to struggle with parents for them to acknowledge her and, like, accept her as she is. And thirdly, just the struggle with, with gender identity, like knowing that your sexuality is one thing, but then being told how you have to express that as a struggle. Judging from the reviews and box office, Pariah is crossing over to a wide demographic. It's not a niche lesbian film. Yeah, and that's what we knew. Like, this is about identity. This is about family. You know, anybody, you know, who's ever had any kind of family conflict, anybody who's ever had friendships that were complicated, anybody who's had, like, a failed first love can relate to this, which, you know, I think covers, like, a lot of people. So this is, like, a universal story about identity. You don't have to be from Brooklyn. You don't have to be a lesbian. You don't have to be black to get it. These are real people. You know, they're flawed. They're virtuous. Nobody's any one thing. So by showing, like, this cross-section of complicated characters, we, you know, we're, we're trusting that people would be able to find a place to plug in. Some audiences, you know, like we've screened in like Dallas and Boston and places where there have been like pretty much predominantly white audiences and predominantly straight audiences and people are saying like, hey, you know, like I, I can relate to Lee Gay's struggle or, you know, I really, I can, I, I can understand Audrey and Arthur more, you know, or people can find some character that they can relate to and this is a middle class family with napkin rings on the table so I think there's something that everybody can connect into and it's not this monolithic presentation of a family or of a community and by showing a range of people and a range of reactions within a community it makes it more universal and more interesting. I love the complexity with which you wrote Alike's parents. In coming-of-age stories, it's easy for the parents to kind of become cardboard cutouts who come in, scream at the kids, and leave. And for this, it's important that the parents have their own lives. So we spent time with them outside of Alike. So we understand, like, what are dad's fears? Like, what does he want? Like, what are his dreams, you know? And so same thing with Audrey. How is she at work? So we see that Audrey's just this lonely, frustrated woman who played by the rules but doesn't understand why life isn't coming how she wanted. And with Arthur, he just wants things to stay the same with his daughters, but he sees how some of his peers treat gay women. He doesn't want his daughter to go through that. So we see how how, how everybody has their own kind of conflicts and everybody is like a whole person. They're not just there to serve Alike or to hinder Alike along her journey. They're all the lead character in their own lives. Kim Wayans is best known for over-the-top comedic characters, having got her start on her brother Wayans' variety show In Living Color. But she had no problem, but she had no problem diving into the role of Alike's confused but loving mother. 
Well, you know, Audrey's a very controlling figure. She wants to keep her daughter right here. She's one of those moms that doesn't want to let the birdie fly. So she's, you know, a very domineering presence in her daughter's life. She loves her daughter very much, and she wants to control her. And she thinks she knows what's best. And based on what she's been taught, based on the doctrine that she believes in, what her daughter's doing is about to destroy her life. So you have a desperate mother struggling to save her child. So what does Kim Wayans hope audiences take away from Pariah? I hope they take away the fact that, that we should accept, we should love, we shouldn't judge people, we should understand that people come into this world the way they are. That homosexuality is not a choice. It's, it's how people are drawn. That's who they are. And our concern should be on people having good hearts and being good people and doing good work in the world and not focused on what their, their choice is sexually or, or, or otherwise. It has nothing to do with anything. And what does filmmaker Dee Rees want audience to take away from Pariah? I hope people take away the fact that it's okay to be themselves, and I hope that people who, you know, one of the things I've learned throughout this is that people can change, my, my parents being, like, some of them. And I think that people take away the fact that we don't have to conform to people's expectations of how we should be or how our life should be, and that love is possible, just that love is possible and life is possible. And that, yeah. And Dee's biggest surprise in all this? The biggest surprise, honestly, was my parents seeing the film and embracing me and loving me, because they've, they've gone a long way in seven years. And... So it's just proven that people can change. And so that's been an amazing experience because I always thought with this film I could change somebody else's parents' mind, but I didn't know that I could change my own parents' mind. And so that's been a huge deal for me. This has been a conversation with Dee Rees, Audapera Oduye, and Kim Wayans of the new lesbian hit film, Pariah. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Here I am, I'm on the edge, yeah, and I don't know how many times I can do this. I feel like I'm a I'm Steve Pride. And I'm Vosh Bodhi. And you're listening to the January 9th, 2011 podcast edition of IMRU Radio Magazine from the studios of KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. IMRU. And now, screens. Now, retort. Last week, the nation heard a great thud as reality television hit bottom with an episode of Celebrity Wife Swap, featuring slightly loopy Oscar-nominated actor Gary Busey, pitted against one of the decade's biggest homophobes, Ted Haggard, disgraced former president of the National Association of Evangelicals, who was ousted after admitting to Crystal Matthews and allegedly having a three-year relationship with masseuse and male escort Mike Jones. I met Mike years ago when the scandal broke, so as soon as the final credits started rolling, my hand went to the phone. 
My name is Mike Jones, and I am the man who exposed Pastor Ted Haggard in 2006. I wrote a book. It came out in 2007. It was called I Had to Say Something, The Art of Ted Haggard's Fall. And the reason there was that subtitle, The Art of Ted Haggard's Fall, is because I knew him for two and a half years as art. I didn't know he was Ted Haggard till the last six months of our relationship. What sort of feedback have you had over the book? I have people that loved it and people that hated it. And Ted Haggard even wrote a review saying I was a liar. So <laughs> I've, I've heard all aspects. And you know what? And, and all aspects have to also, it came from all the population, from heterosexuals and homosexuals alike. You know, I've been kind of thrown on the bus by the gay community, so there's a lot of friction there with me. It's not that I don't have my supporters, but I certainly had my detractors, and many came from the gay community, and, you know, a lot came from the religious community. So, I mean, I've, ha I've had it from all angles. I've been shut down quite a bit. <laughs> but anyway, I can laugh a little bit about it now, where years ago I would cry. If anything's ever written about me on blogs, then the, the remarks are just hor horribly nasty towards me. So... I no longer read any blogs at all that are written about me because it just doesn't do any good for me to read them. Now, Ted Haggard's wife, Gail, also wrote a book that was featured prominently during the show, and you were referred to as Satan. Have you read it? You know what? I did not. I've heard bits and pieces of it, but I really, honestly, don't have a desire, only because she knows more than she claims there's a couple of things I never, ever said about the scandal because they're so disgusting, and I've always kept them to myself. But I will just tell you this. Gail Hager knew about me before the scandal. That's all I can say. So when she acts like she's shocked and surprised and horrified by everything, the only reason she stayed with her man is because she knew about me. In her book, she also says, Ted and I believe that God sent a game of Zeus to rescue Ted from the sin that was destroying him. When you were having sex with Reverend Haggard, did you ever feel the hand of God? No, I did not feel the hand of God. Let's <laughs> um, keep on reading my book, which, by the way, is really, really cheap on Amazon right now. But if they read my book, they would see how much I kind of tormented myself over my decision. I just didn't wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm going to expose this man. It took an emotional toll on me making my decision. Well, I'm referred to as the devil. <laughs> it was really interesting that the only kind of drama they could present was towards the end where Busey's, quote, wife asked him again. Now, i got to clarify about the accuser being Satan or the devil. <laughs> that was the only drama they could create in the whole thing. <laughs> but I'm used to it. They've always referred to me as the devil and... I know what it's like behind the scenes. I know what producers and directors and people in charge of a show, how they want you to act on shows. But let's face it, it couldn't have got any more syrupy, especially when they're like kissing at the end, saying how much they love each other and almost like tonguing each other. I just thought, give me a break. <laughs> What's the biggest misconception about you? That I was a drug dealer. Nothing hurts me more to see that I was a meth drug dealer, meth fuel drug dealer meth fuel prostitute, nothing like that. I did help Ted obtain methamphetamines because I knew somebody that did them. I personally hate meth, didn't like it, 
And the one thing that needs to be cleared up, and Ted has told the truth on this one, we never, ever, ever did drugs together. Never. Did he do his stuff in front of me? Yes. But I don't care for meth. I never did them. I don't want to. And so we never did them together. So I think the whole drug issue is the most misunderstood part of the whole story. Mike, what are you up to these days? Well, I work with Alzheimer's patients, so that's kind of really where I'm devoting my life right now. You know, I've been through a lot, and I've had a lot of peaks and valleys in the last few years, and as much as I try to move on, Ted always resurfaces, and of course, my name and face always resurfaces with that, so it's really hard to move on, but I've tried, and my way of moving on is I'm trying to give back the best I can to humanity, working with Alzheimer's patients. I'm personally hoping for a celebrity wife swap with Elton John and Rick Santorum. But in the meantime, I'll get my lessons on family values somewhere else. This has been a conversation with Mike Jones. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Feel a righteous anger when I look at you. You've fallen too far to comprehend the truth. My truth won't allow me to compromise. So I pray that I'm granted the power. On the day that I level your towers. I see faith restored when your children die. And be justified in the name of come to Hawaii and Delaware, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. With the 2012 New Year, new opportunities for same-sex couples in Hawaii and Delaware became possible. That's because on January 1st, those state civil union laws went into effect, allowing civil unions for same-sex couples. In Hawaii, those unions became official just after midnight into the new year, and in Delaware at 10 a.m. that day. Hawaii and Delaware joined Illinois, New Jersey, and Rhode Island in recognizing civil unions. Same-sex marriage is legal in Washington, D.C., New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Iowa, Vermont, and New Hampshire. In Delaware, Lisa Goodman and Drury Fennell, both attorneys, were the first to unite under the new civil union law at Trinity Episcopal Church in downtown Wilmington. Ironically, they themselves had helped write Delaware's new civil union law. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Mary Wallace. This is David Dean Botrell and you are listening to IMRU, streaming online at kpfk.org. And now, music. Say you're a young guy who takes the road less traveled, a path that shocks your friends. You decide you want to be a Catholic priest, but seminary isn't quite what you imagined, and the struggle between your secular and spiritual selves, not to mention the institution, is anything but holy. So you turn your back, your faith betrayed, your future blurry. Now what? Tragedy seems to strike at the peak of any life No, no matter what it tries 
You are still my lover I hold you close, I hold you fast And wipe those tears back with my hand And when we both return to sand You are still my lover They say that everyone Thousand years of love may come To wrap you up and tie your bones To steal your flesh and save your soul And take you to the great unknown Well, I've got my My name is Tom Goss. I am a singer-songwriter based out of Washington, D.C. Okay, but, but who is Tom Goss? Oh, well, that's that's a question. very broad question, yeah, I know. which would be an hour, which would be another. more than an hour and a half in and of itself, right? No, I could get off easy. <laughs> um, when did you know you were gay? Not for a long time, actually. You know, my parents' relationship wasn't a very good one, and so they separated, and, and it wasn't very amicable. And so I remember at a very early age telling myself that I wasn't going to be in in relationships and um and so i didn't i mean for 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 most of my life i was um i I was what you would probably call asexual and that was through college and i never had any crushes and i never had sexual feelings i never i didn't have kind of those things that people usually have between 16 and 20 these kind of driving forces that overtake them i think because i had been hurt so bad by my own experiences on the other side that i just didn't want that for myself and it was strange. I wrestled through high school and college as well. Wrestling sweaty, muscular boys and not a single clue? Well, I mean, wrestling's, I think, only homoerotic in porn. It's not really homoerotic in reality, especially if you're, you're driven like, like I was driven. And um, I did that through college. And, and I remember not really being attracted to women or not really getting it and going on a couple dates and not getting kind of this feeling that people were having and thinking, well, maybe I'm gay, but... I didn't have those feelings either, you know. I, I spent I spent my days standing around showering with 75 naked guys and going to tournaments where there's hundreds of us standing around weighing in. And I can honestly and truthfully say that I was never attracted to any of those people. I never, I never wanted to have sex with them. The thought never crossed my mind. Sex, it didn't never cross my mind, but, it, you know, it didn't that often. I remember when I, when I was about a junior, at the end of my junior year in college, when I started thinking about going into seminary and becoming a priest and and I didn't really <laughs> I still don't know even afterwards I don't really know what celibacy is right I didn't know what that meant as far as even masturbating was concerned right now we're getting right into it but uh, um yeah I don't I think there was like a year where I didn't even masturbate it just wasn't even this wasn't even there for me it wasn't it wasn't something that was in the forefront of my drives of my thoughts and so for me I didn't really know I was gay until I was 23 and I was kind of beyond all that and I fell in love and that was really great tell me about your experiences in seminary you came out there yeah well well like I said I I fell in love I got there and I fell in love and that was beautiful and that was great and it's interesting you know people think it's it's really alienating to be to be gay it is in some ways but it was even more alienating to be asexual to have all these people, whether they're gay or whether they're straight, they have these these drives and these 
these passions, right? These passions for for love, for sex, for lust, for all these things that people may think of as, as negative, but they're not. They're just like these natural, beautiful emotions. And I didn't have any of them. And so I remember when I fell in love, being so relieved. I didn't care it was a man. That didn't really bother me. I, I thought, wow, this is this is awesome. This is beautiful. These are the kind of things that everybody else around me has been experiencing for you know, in some cases, 10 years, and I just had it all. And so I was like, oh, this is great. I'm just gay. Like, this is awesome, you know? So for me, it was more of a relief than anything. Was it another student there? It was a classmate of mine, yeah, yeah. And it was weird. It was like, I mean, obviously, it didn't go anywhere, and there was not much we could do about it. So it was kind of this, like, tumultuous relationship that lasted maybe six weeks where we both realized we were in love with each other, and... We both were too conflicted enough, too conflicted about it to really do much of anything. It was it was kind of tragic, but it was beautiful at the same time. You obviously left seminary. Yeah. No. I mean. I mean. Yeah. It, it just became it became a really destructive and unhealthy place, and um, and I'm not. I'm not. I'm pretty confrontational, so <laughs> I kind of told everybody to go fuck themselves. I don't know if I could say that on the air, but. Um, and, and in 24 hours, I quit. I packed my bags. I found a place to live, and I moved. And, and I had no idea what I was doing next. And I knew I was enjoying the music that I was writing, and I, I knew that I was finally writing music that didn't suck. Um, it's true. And so my whole goal was I had always wanted to make an album, and so my whole goal then became to make an album. And so that, that became my 2006 Naked Without, which, which was recorded... I would say over a six or eight month period, um, some of which even in seminary, some of which I, that that album was was recorded by myself in my room, but but it was such a tumultuous period to me. It was probably in that six six seven month period. It was probably five or six different houses. I was I was bouncing around a lot. It was very unstable. You worked with the homeless for a while. Are you not doing music just full time? I actually still run Charlie's Place, which is a meal program for the homeless. Well, tell me um, about that. Sure. Charlie's Place is in DuPont Circle area, and uh, we serve breakfast four days a week. We have caseworks, a housing placement, job placement, outreach work for street-dwelling homeless, HIV testing and counseling. It's kind of like a one-stop shop for for the homeless as, as much as it can be. And I was the program director there for a couple of years before music started taking off, and I've negotiated this part-time telecommuting position, so I'm still the development director. So I do all the grant writing and fundraising and donor relations and special event stuff. It's it's great. So you're doing all of that. You're writing music. Mm-hmm. You're touring 50 cities, and you're married. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a lot when you when you bunch it all into one sentence. But when you string it out over time, it's it's still a lot. But, well, <laughs> but me, it's manageable. Tell me about your husband. Uh, he's amazing. And, um, you know, we were talking about seminary and how bad of an experience that was for me. And, and I met Mike... I, I actually, he'll kill me, he'll kill me if he hears this interview, but I actually met Mike the day that I left seminary. Um, I didn't meet him in person, I met him online, and I told myself that night after it was, it got so bad and so horrible, and I, and I quit at about three in the afternoon, and I went and looked at some houses, and I applied at a bunch more places to live, and I didn't know what I was doing, um, but eventually it was like 10.30 at night, and nobody was like letting me in to like <laughs> look at the apartments, right? And I was just stuck in kind of what had become my hell. 
And I told myself there was no way that I was going to spend another night in this place. And so I went online and I, you know, decided I wanted to spend the night with somebody else. And um, I met Mike that night. Well, I met him online, but it just... It just didn't. It just didn't feel right, and so I didn't meet him in person. And I went and met someone else. And thank God too, because I was I was crazy. I was really crazy. And so I spent this this night, um, you know, screaming and crying and making love and then crying and screaming. This this who, this guy. He was like, "What did I get myself into?" And and Mike was really like, "Okay, cool, like whatever." And a couple weeks later, I I, I you know I shot him a line and said, "Hey, we're gonna go on that date. Like, I'd love to meet you." And it was kind of all over from there. It really, it really was. I think we both tried to go on a couple other dates after we met each other, just to because we didn't want it to. You know how it is. You don't want to dive in emotionally. We were, and I was coming off this big heavy thing, and he was just getting out of this relationship, and so we both were trying our hardest not to be in this relationship, and we just didn't really have any control over it. Can you take us out with a song? Well, I'm going to I'm going to play I'm going to play the last track off my new album and this is a this is a funny track because for me the last track on an album is always really important and um so I spent a lot of time trying to write this song and I wrote a bunch of songs and they just weren't working. And then I finally gave up and I sent I sent all the songs to my producer and um just kind of figured one of them will be last, right? And after I did that, the next day I'm sitting around um, in my room on my bed with my guitar watching Jerry Springer like I do. <laughs> and uh, um, I started writing this song. You know, as soon as I let it go, the song came out. And I got really enthusiastic about it and excited, excited about it. And so I, I recorded it real quick and sent it to Mike. It's a love song with the lyrics. And a couple minutes later, he wrote me back. And he was just like, hmm. And I was like, okay. He was like, I'll talk to you when I get home about it. And I was like, okay. So he gets home, and he essentially was just like, the song's not that good. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, I'm surprised you like it. All those other songs you wrote are better. And I was like, really? We went on with this a couple minutes, and I was like, wow, this song must really suck. So I went in my office, and I picked up the guitar, and I started playing it to myself, and I thought, this is awesome. I love this song. He's crazy. He's crazy. And as I'm doing that, he's in the other room, and he goes, oh, that's really pretty, sweetie. What is that? I was like, what? What? That's that song you just told me sucked. And he's like, no, it's not. I was like, yes, it is. And so I pick up the guitar, and I play him the whole song. And um, by the end of the song, he's like, oh, my God. That is the most beautiful song I have ever heard. <laughs> it was hilarious. And I was like, you're crazy. You're crazy. But um, it was really funny. And this is a song called You Know That I Love You. And you know that I love you Cause I've used up those three words And like it was promised 
I love Grand Saribur. Cause there are no days without you in my life. In all of my songs, they are about you. You and I, and I know you feel the same. And I watched as my parents' love sank to the sea. But after twenty years, I know now that is not my destiny. Cause there are no days without you. In my life, and all of the songs I sing, they're all about you, you and I, and I know you feel the same, and I know you feel the same as I. Yeah, yeah. Oh. This has been a conversation without musician Tom Goss. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. I know it's L.A., and I know it's sunshiny outside, but I'm going to play my Christmas song. Um, and for me, Christmas was, was always a really fun holiday. And my mom's from this big Italian family in Chicago, and... It was always so much fun. The one day that we would all kind of get together and, and and enjoy each other's company was 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 Christmas and um and yeah, it was fun. It was crazy. It was everything that you would imagine a big Italian family to be. <laughs> it was loud and it was boisterous and it was full of emotion and and yeah, it was it was great. And my my grandfather passed away a couple of years ago, and and so in that passed away this tradition, and so. It holds a very special place in my heart. Kitchen lights, family fights, and when it's time we will greet the night. In one room over, uh oh, the laughter starts. I'll never grow the kitty table in my heart because it is 
Christmas Chicago time Well the Italian in my bones Has got me brimming with the more red Cause it's Christmas Chicago time And though the winter wind she bites It's on the inside summer shines And so we peel it back Our deepest past we all share them so we got the last laugh And all the superstitions we pass the Christmas host And when it's time to eat we laugh and toss away our ghosts Cause it's Christmas Chicago time Well the Italian in my bones has got me brimming with a more red Cause it's Christmas Chicago time and though the winter wind she bites it on the inside summer shines and oh oh Well the bears know they haven't lost yet So there's still room to cheer In the cobs well enough time the pain has passed Wait till next year Cause it's gonna be a good one No, 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 no To the tree On our knees Let the youngest cousin Start the party And as we open presents It's obvious to see That no amount of gifts can replace This family Cause it's a Christmas Chicago time well, the Italian in my bones has got me brimming with the more red Cause it's Christmas, Chicago time And though the winter wind she bites It's on the inside summer shines And oh, Christmas, Chicago time And always dingling in my bones has got me brimming with the more red Cause it's Christmas, Chicago time and though the winter wind she bites, it's on the inside. I'm Steve Pride. And I'm Vosh Bodie. And you're listening to the January 9th, 2011 podcast edition of IMRU Radio Magazine from the studios of KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. Now, screens. And now, travel. Key West is a city and an island of the same name at the southernmost tip of the continental United States. It's closer to Havana than Miami, about half the distance, and not real big, only 7.4 square miles. It was where Tennessee Williams wrote A Streetcar Named Desire, and it was the first U.S. town to elect an openly gay mayor. The official motto of Key West is One Human Family, and to the people that live there, it's more than words on a bumper sticker. Recently, I spent time in Key West, and I want to introduce you to some of the people I met there. So I'll shut up now and let them talk. My name is Carol Shaughnessy. I'm a writer and a almost 30-year Key West resident. I came down here as a naive 20-year-old Minnesota girl. 
I found a small town where people were friendly. The weather was gorgeous. You were accepted for who you were. And the community gave you the latitude to grow into who you wanted to be. You're judged not on externals, but on what you have to give and uh, what kind of uh, commitment you want to make to the community. It's much more about what's in your heart than what's in your wallet. I found that lack of pretentiousness and that straightforward friendliness to be incredible. I've been here now for almost 30 years, and I can't imagine living anywhere else. Hi, I'm Tom Oosterhout. I've lived in Key West almost 25 years now. The 70s and 80s were a whole different thing. The Keys was the wild, wild west. This was the center of drug imports for much of America. So you had marijuana and coke flowing. You had a very open gay society because it was pre-AIDS. And I look back and that certainly was a different time and place than what we have today. Of course, with AIDS, the whole sexual revolution came to a grinding halt and uh, the feds cracking down on drug running and all that. The whole nature of the Keys and Key West was tamed by the late 80s and 90s. So the Key West you see today is a very tamed Key West, although it's still a wonderful place that cherishes its diversity. Although many major metropolitan cities claim huge ethnic populations, Key West, we have just about everybody represented here, but because it's a one and a half mile by four mile long island, it's tiny and we all have to work and play side by side. So if you're gay, straight, black, white, Catholic, Jew, whatever, you're uh, working side by side with someone that's probably very different than you. I mean, they could be a gay, black, Puerto Rican. You never know here. So not only do we cherish our diversity, we live it. We uh, make it a way of life. When I first came to Key West in the late 70s, it was definitely not a tourist community. It was a commercial fishing community. And again, it was quite poor at that time. The gay community played an incredible part in the revitalization of Key West, buying the old beautiful Victorians, which unfortunately mostly were held together by termite spit because, as I said, it was a poor community, restoring these houses to their former glory, opening guest houses, opening businesses. The gay community played a very big and very welcome part in the creation of the Key West that visitors will see today. My name is Neil Chamberlain. I'm a resident of Key West. I own the gay information website pistolanonyma.com, the largest gay information website in Key West. Running a business in Key West can be very difficult, can be very trying at times. I'm very fortunate in the business I run. I love it. Not many people can do what they love and make a living at it. I get to go out to the clubs, hang out with my friends, meet new people constantly. When you get into the gay and straight lines, there are many people that have been coming here since the early 80s and 90s that wanted to stay at like a male-only resort or a female-only resort. They kind of made their own segregation in a way by doing that. Even though they were welcome anywhere in Key West, they felt more comfortable in the company of just men or just women. We are a very blended community, and I think in a way it has hurt us in the fact that some people do want to come down and stay at a gay resort or go to a gay club. Technically, we have just a few gay clubs in a small area. However, all of our clubs are all welcome. But a lot of people, when they come down, they say, what gives? This is supposed to be such a gay community. Why are there only five gay clubs? Well, there are five clubs that are identified as gay, but, you know, there's another 70 that anyone can go into. 
My name is Heather Carruthers, and I'm a co-owner of Pearl's Rainbow here in Key West. Pearl's Rainbow is the largest resort for women in the world. We've got 38 rooms and suites and two pools, two hot tubs, a restaurant, a poolside bar. All our rooms have private baths. We've been in existence since 2000. The property itself has been here and operating as a women's space since 1989. Hello, I'm Gary Walker from the Equator Resort in Key West, Florida. The Equator Resort's going on its 10th year here in Key West. We have all male. I'd say the average age is anywhere between, I'd say, 35 to 45. We have 19 rooms here on site, and it has that southern hospitality. I'm a southern girl, honey. <laughs> My name is Philippe, working at Alexander's Guest House. The Guest House has been uh, open, gay, lesbian for the past 25 years. We have mostly couples, I would say, from 25 up to 75, yeah. In the 75, they've been together for like 30 years and 40 years, and they've been here for like the past 10 years, year after year. They always come back. Jerry Tinlin, I'm the Vice President and General Manager of Oasis Coral Tree Inn and Coconut Grove. People who come down here often, often buy down here because they love that laid-back, easy-going lifestyle I think one of the big attractions is that this is the end of the road. You can't go any further than Key West. That's out into the ocean, 160 miles off the mainland. Those are attractions to people who can afford to buy a second home here, which is a lot of the commerce that goes on, or buy a home here and move here. Hi, I'm Martha Robinson. I am a full-time realtor for 20 years in Key West, Florida. We've had a wonderful ride for many, many years. We've watched everybody renovate our homes and the conch houses and in Newtown, Old Town, Midtown. And then, um, in my opinion, this adjustment has not been so horrible because it is allowing other people to buy right now. I have a customer who's in the dog grooming business and he's always wanted to buy a home and couldn't. And now we are able to get him into the market. So things like that are happening. I mean, we're talking about four and $500,000 as being affordable. However, a little tiny condominium unit did just sell in the $269,000 range. I can't imagine living anywhere else, but the cost of living is very high. And a lot of people come here with the idea of living in paradise. And it is paradise, but it's an expensive paradise. Employment is very tough down here. Or getting good employees is tough. We jokingly say anybody that shows up for work on the second day is a long-term employee. There's plenty of jobs. If you're willing to come down here and work hard, you'll do fine. Thanks, Neil. I hate to interrupt my wonderful new friends, but I just wanted to remind you that I'm Steve Pride, and you're listening to IMRU. Now back to our Key West adventure. For your safety and comfort, please remain seated at all times, even while taking pictures. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the All Aboard from Ryan the Conductor, so we'll be on our way. Hi, I'm Steve Smith. I work for the Florida Keys Tourism Office. I'm a sales manager for the gay and lesbian markets. When they did the census in 2000, one of the boxes that we all got to check if we chose to do it was, are you in a same-sex domestic partnership situation? When those numbers were compiled, you got to remember, we're two miles by four miles. We're closer to Cuba than to the United States of America. We had per capita more same-sex couples than any other city in the United States. Isn't that an interesting thing? I'm J.T. Thompson, and I am the founder of One Human Family Foundation, which has a mission of promoting equality and unity for all people around the world. I came up with the words One Human Family, started printing them on bumper stickers, 
I printed 2,000 originally, and since then we've given out over 700,000 stickers all over the world. The city commission in October of 2000 made One Human Family the official philosophy of Key West. In many places, there is a tremendous pressure to be as average, as ordinary, as common, and blend in as much as possible. And in Key West, people are really rewarded for being creative and unique and different. So this really is the perfect community for One Human Family to take hold because there's very little in the way of judgment that goes on. We attract eccentrics here. I'm Kathy Sheehan. My store is the Chicken Store, and I'm captain of the Rooster Rescue Team in Key West. It's kind of a traditional thing here to have the free-ranging chickens in the streets and under the houses and in the backyards. We have the most profound respect for the chickens. They are quasi-protected. Most people will stop you from doing anything harmful to them, stop you from chasing them and so forth. And then you try and take something to the state attorney and uh, they lose the uh, files or something. So I have to ask before I leave, what exactly is a street chicken? Uh, it's like a chicken gone bad. <laughs> a street chicken is a uh, chicken that belongs to himself. He doesn't belong to anybody else. And... Uh, he lives by his wits and uh, thumbs his nose at rules and regulations. My name's Brad. I lived in Key West for seven years. I do whatever I like, and Key West is a place that allows me to do that. And primarily, my life revolves around helping people heal. I do that through touch, and I do it by using sound, by using ceremonies that I create myself. So. I'm somewhat of a magician, really, and <laughs> in a way, um, I've been influenced a lot by Native American traditions and even by shamanic traditions of Siberia. I prefer to help people heal sexually and erotically, so I work with erotic energy. I like to bring people to full states of erotic and sexual ecstasy, and I just chose to be a dancer because it allows me to do that with numerous people every night but it seems to be much more effective when I can do it one-on-one with someone in a much quieter place. So I've created a, a sanctuary in my home for sexual healing. Who am I? Richard, Richard Dennison. The Queen Mother is a wild little pageant. It's actually the highest drag title that you can have on the island, and you have to really earn it. Um, you can be pretty, you can have expensive gowns, you can have a wonderful talent number, but if you haven't given to the community, and I competed three years and was first runner-up three years in a row. And finally, on the fourth try, I won it. After Wilma hit, we had like six foot of water in our home, and uh, everything was destroyed. My other half and I are getting ready to walk out the house to a friend's home that was in the dry section. And as we were walking out, he said, if there's anything in this house that you want, you better grab it now. I turned around and looked, and the only thing I saw that I really wanted was my queen mother crown. I picked it up, I put it on my head, I grabbed my two pups, and down the street we walked, waving at the crowd as we walked through five foot of water. This is a melting pot. It's just a wonderful place where people are free to be individuals as opposed to belonging to some kind of a group or having to affiliate themselves with a group of other people in order to get by. Here we really respect the individual as he or she is pretty much on their own terms. And that's what's so beautiful about it. My name is Carol Shaughnessy. You never know who you're going to be spending time with because this is such a wildly, cheerfully diverse community. 
you go into a restaurant and you might be sitting next to someone who has just arrived from Berlin, or you might be sitting next to the president of a bank, or you might be sitting next to a drag queen, or you might be sitting next to a drag queen who is the president of a bank. And everybody gets along. I know that sounds like a Pollyanna world, but it's absolutely true. And and come down and see for yourself. But according to Neil Chamberlain, even paradise has a downside. It's very difficult to date in Key West. Basically, when we go into low season, there are so few tourists coming in that we begin to sleep with our locals. And we call that sister season. And during low season, people seem to like pair off. All of a sudden, you have a boyfriend for the summer. And then as soon as the fall hits and it starts getting cooler again and tourists start coming to town, I think it's time to be single again. <laughs> the Business Guild website is Gay Key West FL for Florida. F is in Frank, L is in Lucy. GayKeyWestFL.com. You also can go to the Florida Keys website, which is FLA-Keys.com, or check out Pistol and Enema. That website always has a little bit of daily gossip. Whatever happened last night is on there. And you know what? We don't mind telling you you were a mess last night when you were laying on the sidewalk. Or we might say, who was that gorgeous guy you were talking to or that gorgeous girl you were talking to? So it's about having fun here. And when you live here and you work here, it's like being on vacation every day. It spoiled me now because when I go on vacation, I keep wondering why I left home. Well, that's the end of our stay in paradise. My thanks to Steve, Neil, Heather, Philippe, Jerry, Katha, Carol, Neil, Richard, and a very, very special thanks to Brad. Also thanks to the Island House Resort, where I stayed, for making an old guy comfortable with the words clothing optional, and to Chef Michael at Antonio's Restaurant for making food so great, I don't regret any of the weight I gained. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. I'm headed for I have such fond memories of Key West. What a great city and what a great piece. You really captured the energy and the eclecticism of Key West. It's an easy piece because everyone else just did all the talking. Really? Because that's the way it is in Key West. You can just stand there with a microphone and just say, hello, what's your story? And everyone has one. Um, Speaking of video, I wish there was video for this because the interview with the uh, go-go boy Mm -hmm. from the bar, because it was loud inside and there's full nudity when they dance in Key West. So he actually put on a little leather cap and a leather jock strap so we could go outside and do the interview on the street. And that raised no eyebrows whatsoever. No, because he gave you formal wear for Key West. <laughs> but yeah, it's amazing. There's a, a woman, Gina, who works at, if I'm not mistaken, it is La Dida. She's a bartender. Uh, she only wears pasties. She's known for her pasties. They're Fabulous. She designs them for you, and they're all bejeweled, but that's all she wears. I've never seen Gina in a shirt. Uh, Fantasy Fest, where people are walking around in just body paint. If you think you have seen it or want to see it, you will see it on the streets of Key West. It's really fantastic. It's sort of the, as he said in the piece, it's the end of the road for people, but it's also the beginning. So I saw a lot of people who ended up in Key West and got themselves together to then begin their new journey leaving Key West. We'll have to get back there soon. Soon, child. Very soon. It was fun. Especially at the island house. And now we have more show. I am our I am.
now, last word. He's Rick Santorum, a loving husband, a devoted father, homeschooler, and a man of deep faith. When we gave the last word to Julia Sugarbaker from the 1980s sitcom Designing Women, we realized she wasn't a real person. But in this election cycle, who is? I was thinking that you seem to have gotten the phrase separation of church and state. The one thing I did forget was just how divisive and dishonest and distasteful someone like you can be. I've sat here today and listened to you pander to these people, but you don't actually care about them, or you wouldn't be sitting here reinforcing their ignorance and prejudices. I have had it up to here with you and your phony issues and your Yankee doodle yacking. If you like reciting the Pledge of Allegiance every day, then I think you should do it in the car, in the shower, wherever the mood strikes you. But don't try to tell me when or where I have to say or do or salute anything because I am an American too. And that is what being an American is all about. And another thing, I am sick and tired of being made to feel that if I am not a member of a little family with 2.5 four children who goes just to Jerry Falwell's church and puts their hands over their hearts every morning that I am unreligious, unpatriotic, and un-American because I have news for you. All liberals are not kooks any more than all conservatives are fascists. And the last time I checked, God was neither a Democrat nor a Republican. And just for your information, yes, I am a liberal, but I am also a Christian and I get down on my knees and pray every day on my own turf, on my own time. And one of the things that I pray for is that people with power will get good sense. And people with good sense will get power. And that the rest of us will be blessed with the patience and the strength to survive the people like you in the meantime. Don't be a drag, just be a queen. Whether you're broke or evergreen. Your black, white, beige, chola descent. Your Lebanese, your Orient. Whether life's disabilities left you outcast, bullied, or tease. Rejoice and love yourself today. Cause baby, you were born this no way. No matter gay, straight, or bi, lesbian, transgender, lie. If I'm on the right track, baby, I was born to survive No matter black, white, or beige, stroller, or Oreo made I'm on the right track, baby, I was born to be brave I'm beautiful in my way, cause God makes no mistakes I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way Don't hide yourself and regret, just love yourself and you're sad I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way Oh, there ain't no other way, baby, I was born this way, baby, I was born this way. Oh, there ain't no other way, baby, I was born this way, right track, baby, I was born this way. Well, that's the end of our ride. Gather your personal courage, take timid politicos by the hand, and exit to the far left of the tram's forward motion. I want to thank my talented co-host tonight, Mr. Vosh Bodhi. And many thanks to tonight's coordinating producer, Steve Pride. And thanks for our guests, who tonight were almost too numerous to mention, but we will. Paul Canning, R. Clark Cooper, Karen Oakham, Wayne Besson, Scott Seitz, Mike Jones, D. Reese, Kim Wayans, Adapero Oduye, Tom Goss, and all those folks from Key West. And thanks to the This Way Out news crew, Greg Gordon, Steve Pride, Rick Watts, and Michael LeBeau. And thanks to our Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. And thanks to you, our listeners. If you have comments or story suggestions, tweet us at IMRU Radio, 
Follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio or contact us via email at IMRU at kpfk.org. IMRU is available on iTunes and on demand at kpfk.org. Go to kpfk.org, click on Programs, select IMRU, where you'll be able to choose to either download, stream, or subscribe to our RSS feed. Although the IMRU community calendar wasn't a part of tonight's podcast, we are still compiling it for you, and it can be found online at kpfk.org, select IMRU. We close with a song from Tom Goss called You Don't Question Love. Good night. You don't question love. You let it be. You don't give the right to some and take that right from me. And if it's family you want, then welcome to my home. Love is something my family owns You don't tell a child You can't be raised here And I can see their eyes And in them questioning and fear Cause a family they know is one that takes you home Loves you more than you'll ever know And take it fast now Or take it slow Your deepest breath, you know Deserves one more Cause I'll never kiss the face of a more beautiful soul You don't question love You set it free Let it grow to something everyone can see If you look into your eyes, you will see your love in mine, and you will bless it, and you will bless it, and you will bless it. No, you don't question love.